part of the... I don't know why I pulled up my calendar app. I don't have Green Knight's release date on that. <laughs> although, I should. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework? The pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your two co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and uh, today the heat here in Milwaukee has finally, for the most part, broken. We're back down to normal summertime June temperatures, and it's an absolute relief. Uh, joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, deeply jealous of your heat break. <laughs> that is not true from Chicago. <laughs> I mean, it still hit 80 today, but like, it was in the upper 60s this morning, and maybe Ooh, right now. I bet that was nice. It was real nice, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of heat, uh, that's kind of a nice segue into our <laughs> movies that we're going to be talking about, because this is week two of our month of Westerns. June is Westerns month. Um, we were thinking about ways to let us talk about one of our two homework assignments for this episode, and realize that the topic of Westerns is one that Martha and I could probably spin out into an entire separate podcast's worth of uh, topics, assignments, etc. So we're devoting three whole episodes, a whole month, to it. Um, and today we are talking about Westerns and how they construct and deconstruct uh, masculinity. Um, and all that goes along with that, especially American ideas of masculinity. Um but before we get into that and uh, get into uh, literally one of the, like, the movie that generated this entire month of Westerns, it's only fair that we share with you what is stuck in our heads this week. This is whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about. Uh, Martha, I kind of just assumed I knew what your stuck in your head was for this week, and I'm seeing, now I'll find out if I was right or not. Uh, so, you probably are. Um, I have, I once again find myself with several options. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bachelorette is back. I just started Mass Effect 3. Um, I think I read a book in there. I don't know. The most important thing, however, is that I went to the movies on Friday. Mm -hmm. I went to the theater. I saw a new release. Uh, and the new release that I saw was In the Heights, the new adaptation of the 2006 Lin-Manuel Miranda Broadway show about... Uh, Latino community in Washington Heights, New York City. Uh, I loved it. It was so much fun. I did not have any familiarity with the musical before I went to see it. Really? Um, yeah, I had not. I mean, I knew that it was a musical. I hadn't heard the book before. Sure. I'd been listening to it on Spotify for the past, like, two months on and off, so... I thought about doing that, and then I thought, you know what? I kind of want to just go in clean mm -hmm. and see what happens. And yeah, it's so fun. The dancing is incredible. The actors are all just an utter delight. Um, it was truly a wonderful big screen theatrical experience, made that much more so because it was my first new release theatrical experience since I saw Birds of Prey in February of 2020. Um, I got oh, very yeah. emotional. It was just, it was truly something special. And I'm, I'm glad that I was able to have that. And I was glad that I was able to have that with this movie. Nice. 
Uh, we were going to see it on Friday, but then it was so lovely here that we kind of called an audible and put it off uh, to, like, drink outside instead. Um, but I think we're going to go see it on Thursday. Uh, yeah, go see it in the theater if you can, listener. Um, as always, this is definitely, I think, going to be a case of voting with your dollar. Um, if this movie is really successful, much like when Crazy Rich Asians was really successful, it will be that much easier for Latinx filmmakers to point to the success of this movie and say, you should make my project because the Latinx audience is, or the Latinx stories are profitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, it's a great movie. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, what's stuck in your head? Uh, what is stuck in my head is a movie that I think you recommended to me. Um, Netflix original, The Mitchells versus The Machines. Uh, yes. Yeah, produced by uh, Lord and Miller, who did um, Spider-Verse and uh, the Lego movies. Uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Um, it is about a definitely not Amazon meets Apple company uh, that accidentally creates a robot uprising. Um, and the dysfunctional wacky family that has to save the world um families is a center the story centers around katie mitchell the uh 18 year old daughter who is going off to film school and her relationship with her father uh, uh katie uh, voiced by abby jacobson her father voiced by danny mcbride um she's a a internet tapped in meme movie maker and he's like an outdoor woodsy guy uh but it's a very sweet movie at its heart it doesn't do I feel like there were very easy tropes it could fall into, and while it sort of played around with them, it never took the easy trope route. Uh, and it was just an absolute delight from beginning to end. Um, it was nice to see the parents as, like, being probably the, like, Gen X millennial cuspy generation. Um, the mom, at least, is, like, as tapped into her phone and Instagram and all the rest as anyone else. Uh, her dad is, like, actively a Luddite, which is why he doesn't know technology, but it's not, like, a generational thing. Um, and they have an amazing, adorable pug who uh, plays a central plot role later in the film in a very entertaining way. Um, I'm yeah. so glad you watched this movie. I really loved it. Um, I feel like animation... Animation that is not Pixar always has kind of an uphill battle in terms of recognizing its appeal for adults. Mm -hmm. And this movie, I think, much like Spider-Verse, um, which is my go-to reference for those guys because I didn't love the Lego movie. Mm -hmm. um, like, this, I think, is still very much enjoyable by kids, but is also, like, has a lot of meat for adults to enjoy. Yes, I I would definitely say on the spectrum of like, mm. I mean, it's a young adult story. It's, like, it's, it's a, about yeah. it's about a girl who's going to college. Like that's a really YA type story. And and it's also about like her understanding her dad and her dad understanding her. Um, it definitely works for both the older uh, people in the audience and the younger people in the audience. All right. Uh, and with that, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about how Westerns have constructed or deconstructed or undercut uh, American ideas of masculinity. So stick around. 
And we are back. Uh, so this is kind of the episode, which is the reason that we're having an entire month of Westerns. Uh, because a couple months ago, Martha saw First Cow and tweeted, Hey Pete, I'm paraphrasing, Hey Pete, what can we do to talk about First Cow on DYDYH, this year podcast? Uh, and then we thought a lot of ideas, a lot of Western ideas, and realized that we had so much to talk about with Westerns as a genre that we should just lean into it and do a lot of them. Uh, so this is all about how Westerns create or deconstruct uh, American ideas of masculinity. And we got two great movies for you. Um, we watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood classic, and we watched, as I said, First Cow, uh, Kelly Reichardt's 2020 uh, yeah. yeah, movie about uh, two best friends, possibly boyfriends, and a good, good cow. Um, Why are you spoiling our entire discussion before we actually have it? <laughs> uh, this is teasing the audience, you know. Also, they know there's a good, good cow. Um, it's right there she's in the title. So, she's such a good cow. <laughs> uh, we are going to start, however, our discussion with the good, the bad, and the ugly because it is um, older in in the chronology. Uh, so, and it's the one that sort of constructs a lot of ideas of masculinity. Um, now, as you probably know from our conversation last episode, the good, the bad, the ugly is actually part of a second wave of Westerns known as the, uh, you might need to help me out on this term. Revisionist Western. Thank you. Uh, these are the revisionist Westerns and, uh, specifically, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a spaghetti western because it is uh, directed by Sergio Leone, an Italian filmmaker, shot in Italy and Spain uh, with a predominantly Italian and Spanish cast and crew, uh, and then your your American leads. Um, but it is it is itself responding to the older westerns of your John Wayne's and uh, you know Stagecoach and Bonanza and all of that. Uh, so already it, we're sort of one step removed from a traditional western. It's also technically number three in a very loose trilogy. Yes, uh, the man with by no name, Mr. Leone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Eastwood. Uh, yep. The first Fistful of, of dollars, few dollars more. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, uh, the first of which was an unauthorized remake of Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Um, uh, and if you haven't seen it, it's very good. Um, so this is uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly stars Clint Eastwood as uh, Blondie, the good, uh, the man with no name. Uh, a, I think we're allowed to believe he's a bounty hunter, basically. Um, that would also be the context that we get from uh, fistful of dollars, etc. Yes, exactly. Um, we have Lee Von Cleef as the bad, uh, Angel Eyes, another bounty hunter. Uh, and then we have Eli Wallach as Tuco the Rat, uh, as the ugly. Um, it's entertaining because of the way that it's translated in the trailers for this movie. Uh, Eli Wallach and Lee Von Cleef's titles of the good and the bad, or the bad and the ugly are switched. <laughs> um... But uh, these are sort of the three main characters. Lee Van Cleef is sort of coming in and out. Uh, they're all looking for gold. There's some buried gold. It's during the American Civil War. Um, Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach are in a quasi-partnership where uh, Eastwood keeps capturing Wallach, turning him in uh, for the bounty, saving him, and doing it again the next town over uh, until there are some betrayals, and then counter-betrayals, and then counter-counter-betrayals, um, 
And then three hours later, there is an incredible uh, Mexican standoff in a graveyard as they are fighting over this buried gold or to find the location of the buried gold. Um, in between, there's lots of meditations on violence and war and sort of the natures of humanity. And all three of our main characters are at best anti-heroes and at worst just straight up villains, uh, but sometimes villains with a code. Um, Martha, this was your first time seeing it. It was my second time seeing it. It is definitely one of those, like, canonical Western movies these days. Um, what were your thoughts? At two hours, this would have been a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad loves this movie, but he is also a very strong believer in the fact that it should never be watched all at once and should, in fact only ever be viewed in vignette segments disclosure i watched it over two days <laughs> and i think he might be on to something mm -hmm. um no by the end like there's there's some really good material in here obviously everyone is incredible the um the gunfights are iconic that last scene is perfect but by the time i got there i was so exhausted by everything that I was just like, I need this movie to be over <laughs> so mm -hmm. I can move on with my life. Mm -hmm. um, it was really interesting seeing where a lot of these uh, Western tropes, like that um, little dee -dee 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 stinger comes from, like mm. a lot of things that I experienced for the first time, it was like, oh, they come from this movie, uh, which was really interesting. Um, Even like the like the 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 visual language, the extreme close-ups on the eyes or on the hands, um, or the way that the gunfighters might walk into frame, so that in the extreme distance you see the full body of of the one gunfighter, and then like you have just the gun and the hand of the the gunfighter who's like right right in front of the frame. Uh, also, at least seventy percent of the dialogue in this movie was 80 yard. I, I'm going to go ahead and say 100% of the dialogue in this movie was 80 yard. <laughs> Which and was very, um, many of the people, many of the people speaking were clearly not speaking English. So but even the people that were speaking English, I was like, did we need to ADR Clint Eastwood? It's and I guess we did. It's, it's 1966. They probably didn't have working microphones on the set. Like, we're shooting out in these vistas and everything. Like, it, it might have been yeah. a straight up, like, like listen, we're not miking anyone because, like, he's speaking Spanish and he's speaking Italian. So, Clint, <laughs> say whatever you want. We'll record it over and post anyway. Um, but, yeah, I thought visually it was beautiful. Um, I will tell you, I was casting the remake in my head the whole time because a thought that I had while I was watching this movie was, why haven't we remade oh, many no. of these old classic Westerns? No, I don't think you can. Like, Levon no, Cleef and, and Clint Eastwood are so... No, you utterly can. Mm. Nothing is unadaptable, and nothing is sacred from being remade. Mm. Um, I would put Jeffrey Dean Morgan in this movie, is my, like, big <laughs> conclusion. Googling um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. <laughs> Oh, he's a supernatural boy? Okay. He's the dad. He was also... Um... Oh, he's the comedian in Watchmen. Okay. Yeah, and he's someone in The Walking Dead. Yeah, Negan. Yeah. I didn't really watch Walking Dead, so... I only watched the first season, because the first season was a perfect miniseries. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that was my big realization. 
also maybe Denzel Washington, but then I remembered that that was just that I should not that just put the entire Magnificent cast Seven. of the Magnificent Seven in this movie. <laughs> and Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt could be in this. To do than be in more Western. <laughs> um, but no, I'm glad I watched it. I did not love it as much as I loved The Wild Bunch. Hmm. Do you think that was partly because of just the sheer length? yeah but also like the wild bunch isn't short Mm -hmm. i think part of it was because like it's not only long but parts of it felt not superfluous but kind of like why are we doing this yeah the the march through the desert definitely is where i'm like this could have been five minutes instead of 20 it just felt it felt like there was more um like more chaff to separate yeah this was shaggier yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did love how it is actually secretly or not so secretly. Um, this is a breakup movie. It might be a platonic <laughs> breakup movie that's under up for debate. But is this uh, between this, between Eli root, Wallach and, and Clint Eastwood? Yeah. Mm. This the root of this movie. OK, so now we're going to get into our theme for the episode, because I think in general that American masculinity is very tied up in a men's relationship to other men. Like, and you know, not necessarily in a homoerotic sense, but in like a, like a bro kind of way. Like the frat bro is typically held up as like one of the um, typical examples of like, American masculinity, whether or not that's good or bad. Um, And you see it in so many things that are meant to be these epitomes of manhood, like in the military, you know, your fellow soldier supporting your fellow soldier, like the relationships between um, soldiers on the front line are very deep and important. Mm -hmm. Um, there's there's a lot of fostering of like quote unquote brotherhood, um, but then also this like deep aversion to showing f- like fe- feminized emotion, mm-hmm. which makes for a very interesting. I think it makes for a very interesting dichotomy when people are encouraged to feel very deeply about each other, but not encouraged to show it. And what I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is about is two men having a friendship breakup but the way that they're expressing their affection is through shooting (laughs) well it is certainly a case they both feel very strongly towards each other that feeling eventually curdles obviously um but they they're obsessed with each other and getting vengeance on each other in a way that may or may not go beyond what what is warranted um that being said they both definitely tried to kill each other multiple times so maybe it is totally warranted i was gonna say we've all watched hannibal like we understand (laughs) that affection takes many forms (laughs) um right but no i think that this like the these instances like feeling betrayed like um, Tugo's response to feeling betrayed by Blondie is to try and murder him via desert, but it's not enough for him to just 
like shoot him. Strand him in the desert the way that Blondie did for him. He has to watch. Mm-hmm. He has to be there and then ultimately ends up making sure he doesn't die because he has sort of a realization like, hey, I don't actually want you to be dead. That only happens once Blondie learns the location of some gold. Like, and, and whether he would have come to that realization on his own otherwise is a, is a point that we'll never know. Yeah, I I think the very personal nature of the way that he is like, I have to see this. I have to see this. Like, that makes it visceral in a way where if he just was out to like, you screwed me, so I'm going to screw you. Like, I don't I don't buy that. I think it's more complex than that. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, And again, and for this, mostly because if he was someone who's like, I just want to confirm that you're dead, he would have just shot him. You know, like, like there. if your goal is to confirm that he's dead, there are ways that we can do that, you know, mm-hmm. um, that don't require trekking with you through the, de- like, torturing you by walking you through the desert for um, a very long time, both on and off screen. But yeah, ultimately, I think that this is a kind of relationship that Westerns deal in, like, frequently. Um, it showed up in the Wild Bunch, too, mm-hmm. where we had the two ex-partners on opposite sides and, like, half of the plot is them dealing with the fact that they are now on opposite sides and how do they feel about that? It's, it's sort of the, all the, the emotions that the men, that men are allowed to feel, namely anger, vengeance, etc., mm-hmm. are dialed up to 11 because those are the emotions that you're allowed to feel. Um, and then when you, you know, so therefore a betrayal is something that can never be forgiven or forgotten um, or worked through in a healthy way, uh, and must be, you know, stewed over, confronted, worked through in an unhealthy way, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is also very deeply tied into a lot of um, honor cultures, which many people in the time, of, like in the 1800s, would have been coming from an honor culture in one way or another. The entire South and Appalachia um, are, even to this day, in many cases, still sort of honor cultures. Um, And a lot of them moved West. Um, This is set during the Civil War, so we sort of have that on top of everything else. Um, Brother fighting brother. Brother fighting brother, exactly right. Uh, And and Leone in Italian is like, war is bad and stupid, this is a stupid war. Um... I also think it's important to note that this was made by an Italian filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, Italian culture is much less afraid of showing feelings. Mm. It's also even more of an honor culture <laughs> in some ways. Uh... It also, phrasing it like that makes me realize um, why it's so easy to translate cowboy stories into samurai stories and back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Same deal. Um, and, and also I, I was doing some research on the, on like Leone and everything. And it's like, oh yeah, he was born in 19. Like he was born in 1929, which means he was 14. When the allies like captured Italy. So he had a interesting childhood, and you can absolutely see why um, he might have the opinions on war that he does. Uh, in in the same way that um, 
Paul Verhoeven was like a child when the Nazis invaded um, the Netherlands and like that has informed his ideas on violence and war and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. World War II has a big influence on filmmakers who live through it as children. Um, well, and I, I also think for, for the American filmmakers who are making Westerns, I think you also see that with Vietnam. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so many uh, of the later Westerns are Vietnam allegories. Again, not to keep bringing up my dad, but he is kind of my biggest reference for how like normal people enjoy Westerns because it's his easily his favorite film genre. Mm. Uh, he thinks that that is part of what, quote unquote, killed the Western mm. was people movie movie goers not wanting to rehash um, Vietnam while it also being this huge like influence in um, American popular culture. Mm -hmm, but right. that's a topic for another time, I think. <laughs> let, let, let me write down that quick note as Vietnam uh, impact on, on Westerns. Um, so, so the other thing about this, and, and the reason why I picked this for masculinity, is because like Clint Eastwood is kind of, for an entire generation of men, became the idea of what a, like the epitome of masculinity is. He's stoic, um, he's, he's an existentialist hero in the sense that his entire, like, existence is defined by his actions because he barely talks, uh, he's laconic in that way. Um, and while he's a very hard man who is an absolute asshole, he also <laughs> does kind of have a heart of gold. Like, he gives a dying guy water, um, blows up the bridge that was causing that, that Union commander so much grief, um, because he... Like, the commander wasn't allowed to blow up the bridge. Um, and he's always able to, like, sort of, He's often able to justify it as, like, oh, this is expedient to me. But it also is, I think, like, he is billed as the good. And while I, I think that's say... a little... I think that's a little tongue-in-cheek. But I think he is supposed to be the the best of the three of them. Although two goes up there, too. Uh, Angel Eyes say, is definitely... I... I would actually like to spend some time on the designations of the title. Be I almost wish that they hadn't gone to the effort of like explicitly spelling out who's who. <laughs> Labeling them in the first 30 minutes of, of everyone gets a 15 minute intro scene. <laughs> and the end credits. Yeah, right, right. Um, because I, I almost think it would have been more interesting to leave it ambiguous because I think an argument could be made for applying that each of those titles to all of our characters. I think it'd be hard to apply the good to Angel Eyes. Well, but even he has his own, like, code of honor. I mean, a man's gotta have a code, but, like, Omar ain't good. Well, neither is um, Blondie, who leaves Tuco to die. Right. Uh, but, like, you know, but he does give the water, and at the end he he leaves Tuco, but then he comes back and shoots the rope from around his neck. <laughs> you this know? is what I'm saying. I think that you could make the argument... I think you could make an argument to apply each of the titles to all of the characters if if Leone hadn't been like, no, no, um, what's his name is definitely our good guy. Can't. Uh... Blondie or Eastwood? Yeah, Eastwood. Yeah. I like I, I think that you can you can apply all three to Eastwood. You can apply all three to Eli Wallach. I think you have a hard time applying the good to Lee Van Cleef. Um 
you got the bad, you got the ugly on there, but, like, the good is, like, yeah, he's got a code, that just makes him lawful evil instead of lawful, you know, <laughs> like, instead of chaotic He's evil. good at what he does. He is good at what he does, and what he does isn't pretty, so that is a valid point. I just, if you, if you don't take good as being a quality, if you take good as being a, yeah, like, like qualitative argument rather than a moral yeah yeah uh, designation no that that's a good point and isn't that isn't it more interesting to think about like who does which apply for especially because i spent most of the movie going really they want me to think of cleaning Eastwood as good <laughs> he's not i i'm They're certainly also about to go desecrate a grave and dig up a lot of money technically there's no body in the grave if they dig that's up the true. right one that's uh, true they don't dig up the right one so no, there is some lies. yes <laughs> <laughs> which fair it is tuco yeah it's also like two hundred thousand dollars so like okay yeah uh, anything else you want to talk about this one in isolation or should we jump over to first cow i think we should jump over to first cow all right tell us about uh, this good good cow so I'm obsessed with this movie. I just want to say right off the bat. Uh, First Cow is a 2020 release by Kelly Reichardt um, uh, based on the novel The Half-Life by Jonathan Raymond. Uh, it stars John Magaro as Cookie, um, or Orion Lee as King Lou, uh, Dylan Smith, Ryan Finley, and Manuel, Manuel Rodriguez as Ver and Clayton Nemro as various trappers, um, Ewan Bremner as Lloyd, Jared Kosowski as Thomas, and then a bunch of other people. Um, and, uh, who's, who's the, the famous, um, English actor who is... I don't know. He's not on the IMDb page. And I don't know off the top of my head. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, Toby Jones. Toby Jones. Yes, yes. Thank you. As the English governor. As the chief factor. Uh, so First Cow is about Cookie, who is a cook traveling with a fur trapping contingent out to the Oregon coast, uh, who um, finds uh, King Lu, a runaway Chinese immigrant, who he helps out. And eventually the two of them make their way to a trapper camp, which is disgusting. <laughs> uh, and they end up, so, so Cookie, they end up carving out a place for themselves in this camp because, uh, Toby Jones has the only cow. He is like the wealthy guy kind of governing this area and he owns a dairy cow and Cookie as a way to make some money for the two of them. Uh, in order to continue uh, their travels ultimately onto San Francisco, uh, they devise a plan wherein in the middle of the night they sneak out to milk the cow. Uh, and I cannot believe I forgot the most important credit in this movie. <laughs> Evie plays the dairy cow. Oh, I thought you were going to mention uh, both Stephen Malkmus of Pavement and uh, Rene uh, Aubergenois, a.k.a. Odo from Star Trek DS9, are both in this movie. Neither of those names mean anything to me. <laughs> uh, Pavement um, was a big indie band in the 90s. Okay, moving on. Uh, so yeah, they secretly start milking the cow in the middle of the night uh, and make little oil-fried donuts that they sell in the camp. 
uh, which are by far and away the tastiest uh, food in the camp because they're the only guys with access to actual milk. <laughs> um, things go awry later in the movie. Um, at some point, Toby Jones realizes what's going on, although not after he commissions Cookie to make him a clafouti, which is a simple pastry made by whisking milk and eggs and fruit and letting it set in a, uh, I made it in a Dutch oven. Cookie's making it in a pan that's directly on a campfire. <laughs> every, uh, every time I was watching him cook anything, I'm like, like, right. Cooking before ovens where there were temperature settings would have been a nightmare. Right. Um, so yeah, they are eventually pursued by Toby Jones, uh, and, um, Implied by the opening of the movie where Alia Shawkat discovers two skeletons that are embraced on the shore of a riverbed, um, they unfortunately do not end up making it to San Francisco. Cookie cracks his head open on a rock uh, and has to take a nap, and they are being pursued unbeknownst to them. So, And King Lou won't leave him. Yeah. Um... So yeah, like I said, I'm obsessed with this movie. It is a very interesting Western in that it is green and wet where many Westerns are orange and dry mm -hmm. because it takes place in Oregon rather than in the desert. Um, but it is about the pursuit of the, the promise of the West. It is about... Um, this brotherly love that I've been talking about. It is about those frontiersmen. Um, it is very definitely a modern Western. Uh, and I feel very, very strongly that it is about two men who, because who they are does not fit in with this overarching vision of Western masculinity um, in the course of them trying to fit into it is what ultimately causes their deaths. Um, hmm. Pete, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I like this movie a lot. It was gorgeous. It was slow, which is not a critique. It is merely a description. <laughs> um and it was lovely. The scenes of cooking made my mouth water. Uh, the relationships between Cookie and King Lou were was was very great. Um, it it was a movie with a very almost like simple and deeply American story to tell. Um, also, the cow was a good cow. Uh, so there's that. She's um, so beautiful. She's such a good girl. <laughs> Had a rough life. Lost her husband, lost her calf on the way up. You know, that's hard. Um, there, there is a moment where Toby Jones starts talking about um, when he is like realizing when he is complaining that she never gives milk because she's being secretly milked in the middle of the night. I was like, he's going to say that he has to kill her and I am going to turn this movie off. <laughs> I'm going to break my TV. <laughs> um like and then i had to shoot my cow because she wasn't giving any milk it's like no you didn't <laughs> um no so so it's interesting that that you you ended your description saying that you thought that this was like two men trying to fit in to molds that don't fit for them uh and yes. that's what caused their deaths and i think that that like cookie is definitely a nice boy um everything about him his appearance his actions all the rest of it 
is like the opposite of a Clint Eastwood type. Um, in fact, I'm low-key... I wasn't sure if I was reading this right, but it seemed like in the early scene where, like, he's out with the trappers and is supposed to not only be cooking for them, but also, um, uh, like, foraging for them. He's, he fishes, but other than that, he's just getting, like, mushrooms and berries and, you know, gathering. And I couldn't tell if that was a case of he's just bad at hunting or if he just doesn't like hunting and 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 killing animals um i think it is important that we see cookie mostly engaging in jobs and tasks that are typically very feminine like cooking and foraging rather than actually hunting like i think that is important yes i i was also going in like knowing that like it's a trapping outfit in 1820 they would have brought a guy along just for that role and it would have been a guy because you're not going to bring a woman out on your trapping party uh for many reasons um and so like that the, the fact that they brought him along as the cook and the like the 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 food provider didn't scan to me as like taking on a feminine role, but then the fact that he wasn't hunting and it didn't even seem like he was trying to hunt or trap really. Um, that did sort of pique my interest. Um, well, and then when he gets to the village, like he, he is not there to like pan for gold or whatever. Like cooking is clearly, it's not just what he was hired to do. It is, it is his passion. Yes. Yes, and, and also, like, but, like, at that time, like, in a in a settled society, unless, like, that would have been a, a bit more of a female-coded thing. But in a frontier society, I think those, that sort of gets a lot more flexible just because of, you know, <laughs> there aren't enough women to do this work. Um, uh, we should have also watched Meek's Cutoff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Where um, we have a couple of caravans full of people who almost die because of their rigid adherence to gender <laughs> norms. <laughs> right. Um, but then, on, on the other hand, King Lou seemed like someone who wasn't struggling so much with with gender norms, but just racial issues, because he's Chinese. And, you know, hey, it's it, even in 1820, it's America. Uh, <laughs> not, like, super open to non-white folks, even in uh, a place where we have native folks. Um, well, and unfortunately, one of the, one of the, one of the very harmful stereotypes that has always existed about Asian men is that they are less masculine. Mm, mm -hmm. Like, that is, that is sort of an established, like... It is it is something that continues to harm them in Hollywood because they are not seen as being viable like action heroes uh, unless you're Jackie Chan. Actually, yeah, like um, action heroes or sex icons. Like, um, I I don't think it is too off the mark to say that King Lou is dealing with a similar kind of thing. I also think that just they are both dealing with the fact that they are other. I, I think that's true. What So what I was sort of getting at with all this is more than, like, gender roles doing them in, I almost feel like this is a movie where it's capitalism that does it does them in. Because, um, you know, why like, they're milking the cow because they're, like, not for their own sustenance, but because they're trying to sell some oily cakes to make some money. Uh, and King Lou is like, we could take this money and go to San Francisco and, you know 
make more more oily cakes there and get rich. So like it, it was a very American story in the sense that it's we're trying to in our own way carve out a niche, make some money, um, but it's all very precarious and it's all a little bit illegal. Uh, well, and, and, again, and eventually it's capitalism that does them in. And but again, it is it is a route that they pursue um It is the route that is available to them. So they are trying they I, are trying to take what they are and what they can do and fit themselves into this society to be successful. Um, but ultimately it's a society that's never going to let men like them be successful. I, I don't I, think I don't think that what I am saying and what you are saying are in opposition. No, I, I think I feel like, and this could be off the mark, there was a, um, I could be missing this, uh, sometime before Toby Jones comes to them and is like, make this fancy cake for my dinner party, um, mm -hmm. they had a conversation about, like, maybe we should pack up and go to San Francisco now, like, sort of get, well, the getting's good and before we get caught, mm -hmm. um, and, like, try to, try to do it again in, in San Francisco, where we'll actually be able to, like, get milk for <laughs> it through legal Without means. Stealing it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they stick around for sort of like it, it's almost like a one last score kind of situation, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. with, like once Toby Jones comes to them and is like, make this thing for my dinner party, then it's like, well, we can't, we can't leave now. And the promise of the you know the payment and all the rest of it from Toby Jones, if this goes off well, like it really does have the structure of a one last job, then we'll retire kind of situation uh except for the job is make some cakes and steal some milk from some cow um and so it all, it, oh sorry like like and so for that reason i'm i'm more on the like tis capitalism that's the villain uh rather than tis gender norms uh but as you say they are not mutually exclusive it also has so many similarities to um, outsider high schooler wants to escape their small town to get to New York City or mm. L.A. or wherever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, which is another kind of other story, but, like, it, the, it, the movie is so specific about, like, they're trying to make it to San Francisco, which is a civilized place, which is a developed place, which is a place where Cookie can be a professional chef and not have that be an object of ridicule. Right. Like, it, like um, it, it, it's both he will have legal access to the resources he needs, and also it's a large enough place that that role can exist. Whereas mm -hmm. in a small trapper community, like, they're crazy famous for making these oily cakes that, like, taste like London or whatever. Um, which is exciting for the trappers because they don't have access to food. Um, but, <laughs> but also, like, it's not a role with any long-term future, regardless of the illegality of the milk, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, he, he can't scale up much more even if he was buying the milk legally, because at the end of the day, you're selling to the fur traders, you know, they're... Well, but the implication is that Cookie is, a, is like, just generally a very skilled chef. Right, right. Yeah, he trained in, like, some, like, Boston or Baltimore... Yeah, like this is this is what he can make with the materials that he has. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I really feel like this is part of 
this is part of the central theme of these these two men are using the skills that they have to get by in a world that doesn't want them there or that doesn't get by in a world where they don't fit because it it would have been much easier for them if they had conformed to the more traditional like we are also fur trappers in this um well and and king lou had like some clear and good i like he had some line about like you know all these people are just looking for the pelts but like the um it's talking about, like the beaver anal sex, which create uh, vanillin, which is still used for artificial vanilla flavoring. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, is like that's crazy popular in China, and I'm like, hey, cool, I know exactly what you're talking about because I'm weirdly aware of artificial vanilla flavors coming from uh, beaver anal secretions. Um, I feel like that's one of those facts that you learn about when you're a teenager, and it just makes you giggle for the rest of your life. Oh, I didn't learn about that till uh, I moved to Milwaukee, but. Uh, still giggling about it uh, regardless of what i learned about it um but like he's got good ideas it's just not the traditional ideas because he's not a white dude uh no one's gonna listen to his ideas so either he's trapping you know on his own for this uh but you know that that doesn't scale he's never gonna be able to sell that like basically doesn't matter how many um beaver secretion sacks he procures <laughs> he's never going to be able to sell it in in the trading post because they're not going to go sell it off to to china because that's weird and gross and like you weird chinese what are you doing they we just want the fur um so that's kind of his the bind that he's in like he has a good idea to make money there's just literally no market on his side of the pacific ocean for it Um, let us talk for a moment about the character development of King Lu, who is, when we, when we run into him first, he is on the run. He is some kind of criminal. I think a um, murderer, and, right? He killed someone? Yeah, I think so. Some Russians are looking for him? Yeah, but it was probably self-defense. Right. I don't know. I'm not going to get too mad at him about it. Right. Um, but then with Cookie, he continues this um, life of crime through the, the scam that they're running. Um, but ultimately, can't leave Cookie. Mm-hmm. Like the, the relationship that they develop, however you choose to read it. I know how I choose to read it. Um, he is not... Like, he clearly has... He clearly has skills that lend themselves to being um, like that lend themselves to unsavory endeavors. And in this country that doesn't like him and doesn't really want him there, he has learned how to use them to his advantage. But at the end of the day, like he is a good person who develops genuine affection for his business partner. And ultimately, the two of them, I think there's some recognition that the two of them can't do it without each other yeah at the end he absolutely could escape on his own and at at multiple points um and at each point he chooses the choice to go back yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know I, i this this one is another one where like the 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 relationship between these two men is the most important thing in this movie. Um, 
it's and, it's basically the only thing in the movie. <laughs> that, well, that that's and, not a knock on the movie, like, but that like it is almost the entirety of the movie. Like the worst stealing milk is almost like a byproduct. What I do think is interesting when comparing this to something like The Good, the Bad and the Ugly or um The Wild Bunch is that those those have these kind of central, very strong male relationships that end one-sidedly. Like they end mm. with someone winning and someone losing. Mm-hmm. And first cow <laughs> it ends it, with them both losing. Well, I I think it's more than that. I think it says that I think what it is saying is that you can have this relationship without the competition. Yes. Like, yes. You don't need to have someone doesn't need to win this relationship. If 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 first cow had the same structure as the good the bad and the ugly, King Lou would have been Blondie and Cookie would have been Eli Wallach. And, you know, it, it does seem like King Lou is a little bit more of the brains of the operation. Um, but there would have been back and forth tension. There would have been, yeah, conflict and competition. But instead, they just work together you, very well. You said that. And it made me want to cry. Like <laughs> thinking about trying to impress these two beautiful human beings into those like such macho and like one upping each other on revenge. Uh, alpha male BS. Like it made me want to cry. That's wild. Okay. So alpha male is hilarious. Cause like Eastwood is absolutely 100% an alpha male and everyone has always read them, read him that way. Tuco is a character who thinks he's an alpha male and wants to be an alpha male, but is always like he's the one with his noose, his head in the noose or his neck in the noose, you know? Well, and the the whole movie is him trying to like, to is like, him trying to get dominance over Clint Eastwood, Eastwood and, and failing and repeatedly Eastwood just being like, I took all the bullets out of your gun. No, I'm not going to let you do that. Um, because part of it, I think, is because the like. This 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 ideal of like, um, like this idealized masculinity, I think, doesn't really allow for two men, even who who have a close relationship, to be equals. So in in the good, the bad, the ugly, there's a constant thing of like, uh, both like Eli Wallach starts this and says it a lot, but then Eastwood does it too later on of like. There's two kinds of people in the world, those with their heads in the noose and those shooting the noose. Or, like, there's two kinds of people in the world, those with the dynamite and those without the dynamite. And and yada, yada, yada. So, on, like, you know, changing up for whatever sequence they're in. Um, which is an absolute, like, you know, there's winner. It's basically, it all boils down to there's winners and there's losers, right? Uh, and but first cow positive. First cow is, that's not the case at all. Like, there are many people in the world, not just two. But then I also think it's important to Kelly Reichardt's statement that because they operate this way, they are operating that way in a world that won't allow for it, mm. which is ultimately why there's, it ends tragically. There's two kinds of people in the world, nice boys who just want to get by and those that won't let them milk cows. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, anything else we want to say, or does that feel like a good button to end on? Um, I didn't look at the document. Did you have any big picture questions you wanted to talk about? Nope. Cool. 
I thought this was going to be a really good freewheeling conversation about these two movies, and lo and behold, it was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it helps when we pick really good movies, and then we both have very strong opinions about both of them. Which are not necessarily... Like, I know that conflict makes for a good conversation, mm-hmm. um, but I don't necessarily think a good conversation needs conflict. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who thrive and require conflict and those who can get by without it. Listen, after I watched this movie, I spent an hour on Redbubble looking for a t-shirt that said Soft Boys. And I discovered that it is impossible to find one that is cute and that I felt comfortable wearing. <laughs> and And no, no higher rating than PG-13. I just wanted one in like that cool 80s font or something that uh-huh. spelled boy with an I. Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure, sure. <laughs> I love my boys. What you okay? Also, what, what you need? Also, we just need to commit to audio. The way that I describe this movie to people, the way that I get people to watch this movie, is by telling them that it is about what if the frontier was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> uh, what what you really need is a shirt of the two uh, the two nice boys um, in like a nineteen eighties style, and then it says cowboys, but it's B O I S. Yes, make me that shirt. Someone yeah, I, make me that shirt. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, make Martha that shirt. Yeah, that idea is we'll, free as long as you tell us that you did it. We'll pay real human money for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, what are we talking about next time? So next week, we are putting a pin on our discussion of Westerns for now. <laughs> the, the western canon will return next week um, is our last western episode we're not putting the pin in now just to clarify that one. Oh, sorry yeah i guess i said that wrong um but we will be talking about the neo-western and what i mean by that is the western um that takes place in the modern day and uses the dna of the western but in a more modern context. We got cars instead of horses. Yes. Uh, I have selected the 2016 film Hell or High Water, directed by David McKenzie, written by Tyler Sheridan, and starring Chris Pine, Ben Foster, and Jeff Bridges. I'm so glad and excited that you assigned that, because that has been on my watch list for... Uh, basically since it came out, and I have not yet gotten around to seeing it, so super excited. Uh, I am assigning the 2007 uh, Coen Brothers film No Country for Old Men, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin, uh, and, rude, uh, Kelly McDonald, uh, saying rude to the Wikipedia entry that does not list her uh, amongst those three men. Um... You were so, going to say something? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say the thing that I would like our listeners to ruminate on while they are waiting for our new episode um, is the question that has been lurking in the background of our last two discussions. And that is, is the Western dead? Are these neo-Westerns even Westerns at all? Which will likely be a point of contention discussion in our next episode. Why are you spoiling our discussion? I'm not spoiling a discussion. <laughs> I'm creating suspense by introducing a question that won't get resolved until later. Anyway, follow us on social media at <laughs> DYDYH Podcast. Um, um, yes, that's our Twitter and our Instagram handle. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Facebook at uh, just by 
Facebook searching for Did You Do Your Homework? Uh, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on any podcatcher. Please rate, review, subscribe, or follow, whatever the verb we're supposed to use on that one is these days. Um, Martha, what are you plugging and where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on social media at Magical Martha on all the places. Uh, you can also listen to the other podcast that I do that drops on the same feed as this one called Love Ya, where Pete's wife Marn and I watch adult rom-coms or teen movies and dissect them in detail. Um, our next movie is going to be some version of Persuasion, I think, a modern version of Persuasion. Uh, and we just watched uh, an Italian YA movie that takes place on a beach town in Italy so you know that was really lovely to watch and and live vicariously through uh, <laughs> that was caught by a wave on Netflix alright uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000 that's P-I-K-O 3000 uh, where I'm just tweeting about politics and pop culture um, apparently we're all talking about whether Batman fucks <laughs> I'll have, to, gonna have, I'll to, have to bleep that, that but you know what? That's a good. That's that's a funny enough thing that I'm <laughs> I'm gonna happily bleep it. Well, and it's such a nonsense conversation because DC has explicitly shown in different comics that Batman does indeed. Um, however, the specific topic of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going in the recording. <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, with that as an excellent way to end this show, uh, we will talk to you all in two weeks where we're talking about those neo-westerns. And until then, class dismissed. You're that's, only allowed that's staying to in. in. If you bleep, you have to bleep out the f Oh, yeah, no, obviously. But also, it's going to be way funnier when I say, like, we're discussing whether Batman bleeps. <laughs> I use a record scratch sound, so it's going to be... <laughs> <laughs>